Good morning, church. How are we? Hope everybody had a great uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, we're now in that time of year, the space between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where Mariah Carey comes out of hibernation, and we got to hear what she wants for Christmas, whether we like it or not. So I'd like to welcome you. Uh, That's a great introduction. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to week 21 of our series uh, out of the book of Acts. And Acts, like we said every week, it's, it's a, um, I think it's just a really timely book for us to be spending a whole lot of time in right now. Because Acts, unfailingly, page after page, will, will continue to answer the question, what is Christianity? What is it, uh, what is it really all about? Uh, what should it look like? How does it operate? How should it be communicated to religious people who have a grasp of Scripture in their background, but also to irreligious people who are living in a, a secular, pluralistic society? Acts will show us uh, the answer to that over and over again, um, story after story. And so today, um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 26, verses 2 through 23, and um, I'm going to read that, and then we'll get into it. This is Paul speaking before Herod Agrippa. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I am going to make a defense before you about everything I'm accused of by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise our 12 tribes hoped to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I'd received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and of what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and to those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. 
To this very day I have obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was making his defense this way, Festus examined in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much studying is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It's to him I'm actually speaking boldly. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, since this was not done in a corner. Uh, this is God's word. So I, I mentioned last week, uh, we are, we're in uh, the final section of the book. It's actually a, a, a section that spans all the way from chapter 21 to the end of the book in 28, and it focuses primarily on, um, on Paul's suffering. Really, from chapter 21 to the end of the book of Acts, it's really just one long trial for Paul in which he's, he's constantly being forced to defend himself. Last week, he was defending himself before Felix, um, the, the imperial um, governor over Judea. Uh, this week, he's defending himself before King Agrippa. But what, what Paul winds up doing in his defenses, and uh, specifically in this passage we're looking at today, is he answers the question, why are you a Christian? Uh, Paul had a really interesting resume that whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him, you had to pay attention to him because Paul left, uh, he left a, a pretty sweet life. He left an upwardly mobile location, um, to become an itinerant preacher for a marginalized religion whose founder was executed by the Romans. And Paul's life itself really begged the question, why? Why on earth would you do something like that? And in his defense to King Agrippa here, uh, basically we see an answer to that question. And so we're, we're asking the question this morning, basically, why did Paul become a Christian and why should anybody else? And... Uh, and the first answer to that question, that's going to be our first and, and really overarching idea today, is this. Number one, it's that Jesus restores our humanity. So I want to read to you from, from Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, uh, where Paul, speaking to Herod Agrippa, had this to say. He said, in fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I'd received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And then verse 11, in all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to foreign cities, since I was greatly enraged at them. So like I mentioned um, Paul, before he met Jesus, uh, would have had what pretty much anybody would have considered to be the ideal life because he was young, uh, he was intelligent, he was born into the right family, uh, he had the favor of all the leaders in his community and really nothing but uh, a bright future and a promising career ahead of him. Uh, basically, anybody on the outside of, of, of Paul's life looking in uh, when he was a Pharisee, would have seen his life, they would have seen a person that was you know, put together by the world's standards and they would have envied him. Um, but in these verses, what Paul is doing uh, before King Agrippa is he's describing his old life very differently. Specifically in, in verse 11, uh, he says that he was greatly enraged toward Christians. That's a really interesting uh, term Paul uses to describe himself because it's a Greek word that uh, literally refers to somebody who has lost their mind. It's, it's, it's describing a person who um, doesn't have the ability to reason at the cognitive level of a human. 
And if you flip back a few chapters to, to uh, Acts chapter 8, when we're first introduced to, to Saul, uh, we're told that he was destroying, or some of your versions might say ravaging the church. And that's a word that describes a wild boar going after its prey. And so the point is that what, what Paul is saying here is, is basically, Agrippa, whatever I look like on the surface, uh, whatever uh, facade I was able to muster, I just need to let you know, uh, underneath the surface, I was, I was unhappy, uh, I was restless, I was a mess, and I was literally uh, a madman who'd lost his mind and there really wasn't anything human about me. That's what he's saying in these verses. And actually, it was Jesus himself who put his finger on this condition for Paul personally. See, one of the things that's interesting about this account of Paul's conversion is that he adds a detail that isn't included in the first account of his, his conversion. Because we're told about uh, Paul's meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus back in Acts chapter 9. But here, as Paul tells the story before Agrippa, he adds a detail that Luke didn't include back then. It's a detail about something very specific that Jesus said to him. He says that when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But followed that with a statement about Paul's life. He said, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, goads, you may have heard me say before, was basically a, a, just a pointed stick. That's all it was. It was a sharp stick that shepherds would use to kind of corral sheep who were not known for being highly intelligent. And you would use goads to either uh, point a sheep away from danger uh, and point them toward where they were supposed to go. And, and, you know, obviously when it came to a goad, the harder a sheep resisted that and kicked against that, or lived in rebellion uh, to that, if you can use that term, the more pain they would inflict on themselves, the more wounded, self in, their, their, their self-inflicted wounds would become. And, and so what's really interesting about this comment that Paul says Jesus made to him, this statement that Jesus made to him, is, is when Jesus appeared to him, he did not say, Paul, uh, you've been causing other people so much pain, even though Paul certainly had prior to that point in his life. What Jesus was saying to Paul when he met him on the road that day was, Paul, you've been causing yourself so much pain. This this way of life that you've carved out for yourself, uh, that is actually, before it's causing anybody else pain, before it's destroying anybody else, it's destroying you. That lifestyle that you've been living is the cause of your exhaustion, it's the cause of your restlessness, it's the cause of your fear, it's the cause of your turmoil. And, And what it led to in Paul's life and what it was only going to continue to lead to by his, by his own admission in front of King Agrippa, was a deterioration of his humanity. And so when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, basically what, what, what Jesus was offering Paul was not just forgiveness of his sins, but a wholesale restoration of everything that had gone wrong in his life. But in order for that process to begin, he needed to surrender his life to Jesus. And, and basically, the Bible says that all humanity is, is in the same condition. In our natural state, all humanity is in the same condition that Paul was in before he came to Jesus, before he surrendered to Jesus. Because right at the beginning of the Bible, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, what, what you'll find back there is the very first lie that the human race bought into uh, was this lie that, that happiness and peace, and joy, and and really the ideal life as it's meant to be lived could be found outside of, rather than inside, of God's will for our lives. Uh, That lie 
is what led to Adam and Eve rebelling against God and sin entering the world. And immediately, the way that the, the story is written in Genesis, you can see how quickly that led to the deterioration of, of, of really of the human race. Because instantly, as soon as sin entered the picture, you see a rift in Adam and Eve's once perfect relationship. A generation later, you see their son Cain murdering their other son Abel. And you turn just a few pages... And in a couple chapters later, you find that the entire planet was so filled with violence, Scripture says that God had to baptize the entire earth with a flood in order to, to save it. That's how quickly things spiraled out of control. And that's that same lie that, that we know best, uh, that we're competent to run our own lives, and that, that we could find happiness, and we could find joy, and we could find peace, and we could find satisfaction, and we could find fulfillment outside of God. That's a lie that has passed into every single human heart. And ironically, it's that lie that keeps us from finding those things that our heart most desperately desires. And what it ultimately leads to, the further we walk down that path, is the same thing that it led to in Paul's life before he surrendered to Jesus, which is a deterioration of his humanity. And so what, what Saul is saying here before King Agrippa is that when, when he gave his life to Jesus and really the overarching reason he did give his life to Jesus, Jesus and the overarching effect that that had in his life was a freedom that began to restore everything that sin had corrupted in Paul's life. It was about a restoration of who he was. And that's exactly what Jesus stands ready to offer everyone who will do the same thing that Paul did, which is put their trust in him and surrender to his lordship in our life. And, and, and so that raises a question for me that I want to spend the rest of our time answering. The question is, if, if Jesus restores us, uh, then, then the question is, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a restored, flourishing human being by God's definition? And, and what does Jesus give us that restores us? And we see three answers to that question uh, in Paul's speech here, and that's what I, what, what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. So first and foremost, uh, what, what the way that Jesus restores us is by giving us, this is going to be our next idea, uh, first, an identity, he gives you an identity beyond your achievements. So I've, I've talked about this concept often um, in, uh, in my preaching, this idea that Jesus gives us a new identity. Uh, but, but one thing while I was putting this teaching together that I don't think I've ever really taken the time to walk through and, and describe is, is uh, what, what we mean when we talk about an identity, what, what that actually consists of. And, and an identity, uh, at least the way that we talk about it, is comprised of at least two things. Uh, first and foremost, it's a sense of self, and secondly, it's a sense of worth. An uh, identity, first off, is comprised of a sense of self, uh, meaning a, a, a core understanding of who you are, a durable core that you can take into all the various situations that you're going to find yourself in in this life and all the different hats that you have to wear. Everybody has at the center of them uh, a self-understanding that they carry with them into all those different situations. And then with that, a sense of worth. Uh, a, a sense that you a sense that you have value, a sense that your your life has meaning, a sense that that basically that you have worth. When you have both of those things, we would say that you have an identity. And whatever it is that you look to to give you those things or count on to give you those things, you could say that, that you're, that's what you're building your identity on or you're finding your identity in. And, um, and a major theme of Paul's testimony that he would go on to write about in basically every one of what would, what would become the New Testament letters was this idea that Jesus gave him a new identity and he's willing to do that for all who put their trust in him. So, so let's ask the question then, 
What was Paul's identity before he met Jesus? And the answer to that is, is pretty clear. Uh, Paul found his sense of self and his sense of worth in his ability to keep God's law. Uh, before Paul met Jesus, he, j- he just talked about it here in the verses that we read at the front end of this teaching. He was a Pharisee. He was an incredibly upright and incredibly uh, religious, incredibly moral person who found his identity and his ability to keep God's law and earn God's love. Right now, maybe you're asking the question, so, uh, you know, of, uh, all things considered, what's wrong with that? What's so bad about finding your identity in something like that? And, uh, and the answer to that is, is basically found in the way that Paul described his life before he came to Jesus. Because what, what trying to find his identity in something other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross on his behalf did for Paul is the same thing that it's going to do in, in everyone's life that tries to live the way Paul lived for any length of time. What it led to uh, was this, this unbearable kind of inner turmoil. In Paul's case, it was ironically uh, his passion for keeping the law that was actually crushing him. Because the more that he leaned on the law to try to save himself, the more that he found he was totally incapable of living up to the law's standards. And it wound up kind of becoming his undoing, which is something that he talks about at length in Romans chapter 7. But that inner turmoil is why he raged like a lunatic at Christians before he met Jesus. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question, but this week I found myself wondering, why is it that Paul was so angry just at Christians? There was a whole lot of people whose, whose beliefs he did not agree with in the Roman Empire. He never, you know, d- tried to destroy pagans. He never tried to destroy polytheists. So I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question, but why is it that Paul was so ferociously determined to put an end to Christianity? And if you think through what Christianity meant for Paul, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. Right? Christians believed that there was no need for a temple because Jesus was the final temple. They believed that there was no need for sacrifices because Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. And they believed there was no need for priests because Jesus was the ultimate high priest. And so Paul knew when he heard and understood the message of Christianity, he could not be right and Christians be right at the same time. And so the reason he had to put an end to that movement, it's almost like he was trying to silence his own conscience by putting uh, to death these Christians and silencing the message of Christianity. And I'm not saying that everybody who tries to build their identity on something other than Jesus is going to become a murderer, but, but that will happen in every one of our lives if we live the way that Paul lived. What's, what's eventually going to happen is there's going to be a profound inner turmoil that's going to lead to a great deal of outer brokenness. All right, now, very few people in our you know, kind of postmodern secular society in the West, very few, few people are trying to build their identity or construct their identity exactly the way that Paul was, which was by keeping the Mosaic Law. I don't know if I've ever met anybody that's trying to do that exactly the way that Paul was, but the point is everybody's trying to do this in some way, shape, or form. So when you talk about you know, identity formation or looking for your identity in something, the question is not are you doing it. The question is what area of your life are you doing it in and to what degree? Because on autopilot we're all doing the same thing. We're looking to build an identity outside of Jesus. And what I thought I'd do to kind of um, maybe shed some light on this idea is, uh, is tell a personal story that actually uh, is, you know, I, I kind of felt a little bit vulnerable uh, with this story, but I, I thought it'd be just a good idea to share with you all. So if you've been at the church for any length of time, you know that um, I've talked about it often. I was a firefighter before I, I became a pastor here. I was a firefighter in Anne Arundel County for four years. And uh, it, was, it was the summer that I was 19 years old that God got a hold of my life. And when he did that, that's the moment that I was certain that I was going to become a firefighter. And it took me two and a half years to, to land that job. Uh, if you had known me, and I'm sure my dad would attest to this, if you had known me during that two and a half year period, 
uh, you would have known very quickly that I wanted to be a firefighter. I was going to tell you all about how great the fire department was, probably try to convince you to become a firefighter. It was, it was an obsession of mine. And just to give you an idea, I remember getting on aacounty.org uh, and looking up the information for the fire department and printing it out and then writing that and reducing it to an outline and memorizing it so that I could give that back to the panel interview when I sat before uh, the Anne Arundel County Fire Department interview. Uh, I had dreams about every single step of the hiring process, usually nightmares because I failed. I wake up sweating. And I, I can look back now and I could see you know, very clearly. Uh, the reason for that was because that wasn't a job for me. That was my identity. Uh, and of course, I didn't realize this at the time, but, but what, the kind of the mindset that I'd adopted was that if I could just get a job in the fire department, then I would be happy. And then I would be whole, and then my life would be worth living, and then I would you know, feel significant as a person, and then you know, my life could really begin, and I could have a sense of self-worth and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but anyway, here's the vulnerable part. That stuff's easy to say. Here's the part that, for whatever reason, was, was harder for me to say. Because uh, I don't know that I've ever really said this out loud, but when I finally got the job after two and a half years, I wasn't even happy. And that was a really hard thing for me to process. I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about that because everybody knew that I had my life set on becoming a firefighter. And when I finally landed the job, there was no joy in that whatsoever. I could never celebrate. And I mean, a, a number of people took me out to dinner and you know, smoked cigars with me or whatever it was, but in, inwardly, I never experienced any joy. And I couldn't figure that out at the time, but it was a really difficult thing for me to process because now I didn't know what I was supposed to be living for if this didn't work. And in my mindset, what had happened was, was for two and a half years, I had this mindset that says, uh, your life will be miserable unless you get this job. And then I got the phone call that invited me to the fire academy, and oh, like instantly, my mindset shifted to, okay, well, now your life's going to be miserable if you lose this job. I went from somebody who was, was anxious about getting something, or pardon me, obsessed about getting something, to anxious about losing it. And I remember when I was in the fire academy, the rule was, if you ever get below a 70 on a test, you get one chance to retake that test and score higher. But if you ever got below a 60, you're fired on the spot. Turn in your uniform, they escort you to your car, and that's it for you. And every single test we took, I remember, we'd have an RTO stand up in front of the class and say, that was the easy one. You know, that's the one that everybody passes, but this next one, this is where people start failing out, we're going to thin the herd, and you guys are in so much trouble. And I believed that lie every single time. And I would have such pits in my stomach, I, I must have lost 15 pounds in the fire academy, I would, I would go home at night and I would be literally like nodding off in my textbooks. I'd get up at four in the morning and do it again. That was, that was a six-month fire academy for me. No joy in it whatsoever. And then I graduated and it didn't get any better. And then I was in the field for six months. I got off probation. It did not get any better. And I could not figure that out. And it's clear as day to me now. It's because I was looking for my identity in something other than the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. And it doesn't work. And what you could actually, what you could adequately, accurately say about me back then is that like me, like Paul, I was kicking against the goads and it was causing me a great deal of pain. I just didn't understand what was going on in my life. There was a whole lot of inner turmoil. Now, maybe, um, maybe that, that analogy kind of resonates with you because you're kind of wired like me and you have a tendency to look for your identity in your career or in your achievements or things like that. Uh, but maybe it's something else for you. You know, a lot of people look for their identity in romantic love and in relationships, uh, in their spouse and their kids. Some people look, uh, uh, for their identity in their, their physical appearance, uh, their athletic ability, uh, their morality, you know, like Paul, or the things that they have or the things that they own or whatever it is, but we're all doing that in some way, shape, or form. And what it always leads to is the same thing that it led to in Paul. You know that you're living that way because there's a constant striving. Uh, there's a constant need to prove yourself. 
there, there's a lack of rest, an ability to rest. There's a lack of peace because you're on trial every single day. And in the times in life and when you're, you're, you're doing well, then you'll have this tendency to become arrogant and look down on other people. But you're only ever just one mistake away from, from blowing it. You're one, you're one failed test away from losing your very identity. But what Christianity does is, is it completely turns that way of living on its, on its head in a way that no other religion or no other philosophy ever has or ever will. Because what Christianity offers you is something you will not find anywhere else in existence. And that is an identity that is received rather than achieved. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, this is, this is Paul. This is the same guy writing. It makes perfect sense that God would deliver these words to us, to Paul. And I've been, I've been looking forward all week to sharing this with you all. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse says that Jesus became sin so that you could become God's righteousness. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this before or anyone's ever, ever told you this before, but in Jesus, you do not just have God's righteousness. According to this verse, you are God's righteousness. That idea... Uh, that is exactly what Paul experienced when he gave his life to Jesus. That idea is what captivated his heart. And that idea is what he spent the rest of his life trying to point other people to for the rest of his days. Because from the moment that Paul understood that on, for, for the rest of his life, he could then say, I no longer need God's law to get God's love and approval and acceptance. Because I already have that in Jesus. And so now that law that was once this crushing burden for Paul, now it was simply a way for him to show love back to God. There is no other belief system, there is no other philosophy, there's no other religion under the sun that gives you that kind of basis for your identity. What, what Scripture teaches, and I don't, I don't know how, whatever you're going through, I don't know how this isn't going to make it seem lighter. I know that's a bold thing to say, but I didn't make this up. It's the gospel. I think the gospel makes everything seem lighter. And what, what the gospel says is that when Jesus died on the cross, I'll make it personal for you, so did you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that whatever you were building your life on, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the regret, all of it, was nailed to the cross and crucified with Christ. Meaning we, are, we were buried with him, we have been raised with him, and actually according to Ephesians 2, we're actually seated with him. Meaning we are a new creation in Jesus Christ with a brand new identity, united with the risen Son of God. And what it means to be, re, what it means to be united with Jesus is that whatever is actually true of Jesus is now legally true of you. And so because Jesus was and is and forever will be actually holy and blameless, it means by grace through faith in his name, you and I are holy and blameless in God's sight. We are as holy and blameless right now as we will be a billion years from now in heaven. And it's because in Jesus we've been given an identity that can be received, not achieved. That's the first thing that Jesus gives us that restores us without which we can't experience restoration. 
But it's not all that, that Jesus gives us. The second thing we can see in Paul's speech here is that Jesus restores us by number two, giving us a purpose beyond yourself. In Acts chapter 26, verses uh, 16 through 18, Paul is, is telling Agrippa what Jesus said to him. Jesus said, But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and of what I will reveal to you. And I want to focus on verse 17 here. Jesus said, I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that by faith in me they, re- they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Now what Paul is talking about there is, 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 is crystal clear. He's saying that Jesus gave him a purpose. They didn't just give him a new identity, he gave him a purpose. And, and, and notice the order of this. It says that Jesus rescued him first, only then to send him back to the very people that he had just been rescued from. And this is exactly what Jesus does for everybody who puts their trust in him. He rescues us, only to then send us back out as an, as an, an agent of his rescuing love to the people that he's placed around us. In other words, he gives us a purpose beyond ourselves. And again, this is a, this is a vital part of what, it, of what it means to be a restored human being. There's a, uh, a woman named Dorothy Sayers who was a British essayist. I've actually quoted her before up here, and she spoke to this. She was actually talking about um, uh, work and, and the need for people uh, to have a purpose that goes beyond themselves. And here's what she had to say. She said, The habit of thinking about work as something one does only to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be psychologically and socially to think otherwise. She said, in the modern view, people become doctors, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. People become lawyers, not because they have a passion for justice, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. She was writing just after World War II and reflecting back on what she saw. She said, after World War II, one of the great surprises for many Englishmen who had had to serve in the army was that they found themselves for the very first time in their entire lives happy and satisfied. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something not for the pay or for the status, but for the sake of getting something done for us all. And what Dorothy Sayers is pointing out there is that that's how we're meant to live. Now, before I move forward with this idea, one thing that I felt like was important to note is that before Paul met Jesus, he did have a purpose. The difference was it wasn't a purpose that, that, that was beyond himself. Because as a Pharisee, for all of his life, Paul was an incredibly moral person. He was doing a lot of good deeds, a lot of good deeds that he continued to do as a Christian. The difference before and after Jesus, though, for Paul, was that before Paul met Jesus, all of his morality, all of his good works, was really born of this desperate need to get, some, uh, this desperate need to get his own needs met, his own need for righteousness, his own need for justification, his own need to feel like he was good enough for God and he was better than the people around him. And that's how, how religious people go through life even now. On the surface, they, they, they do all these good deeds that are good in and of themselves, and they look selfless in and of themselves, but underneath them is a profoundly self-centered motive. That's what Paul was before he met Jesus. He's this ironic blend of a person who on the surface looked like this really moral guy, but underneath that, just underneath that, was marred by all these self-centered motives. But when, when he met Jesus, when he gave his life to Jesus for the first time in his life, all of these needs that he could never meet with his own works were finally met in the risen Son of God. He knew that he was righteous in God's eyes. 
He knew that he had the unending love of God. And so being rescued by Jesus, he was then free to be an agent of rescue to the people God placed in his life. Having his own needs met by the Son of God, he was free for the very first time in his life to love and serve the people God had placed around him with no agenda other than to lead them to the Savior that he himself came to know on the road to Damascus. And I say all this to say, not just great for Paul, but great for all of us because Jesus does the same thing for everyone who comes to him. Now, what I'm not saying is that Jesus is going to call all of us to quit our jobs and become itinerant missionaries. However, Jesus will instill a profound sense of purpose in everyone who calls on his name as his love and his grace and his mercy turns us outwards toward the people that he's placed around us. You can see this in all kinds of figures. In the New Testament, you see it in Zacchaeus. He had a meeting with Jesus and on a dime, he gives half of all that he had to the poor and he repays back everybody he'd cheated four times over. Nobody needed to tell him to do that. The love of God simply led him to do that. You saw it just a few chapters ago in the book of Acts as the Philippian jailer has an encounter with the grace of Jesus and on a dime, he goes from causing wounds to washing wounds. It's one of the clearest signs of a genuine conversion. It's the grace and the mercy and the love of God so fills you and so transforms you that you stop living to get your own needs met. And instead, out of a fullness that can only come from a relationship with God, you now live to meet the needs of others. And so so secondly, the way that Jesus restores this is by giving us a purpose beyond ourselves. But thirdly, and this is going to be our last idea today, Jesus restores you by number three, giving you a hope beyond this life. In Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, Now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. What Paul is saying here is, is what this all boils down to, the central issue here, the reason I'm on trial, it all boils down to this hope. And it was a hope that Paul had on the resurrection. But what I thought was so interesting in these verses is Paul never never uses the term the resurrection here. He simply refers to it as a promise that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. So the, the, the question is, what was the promise that God made? And if you read through the Old Testament, there's all kinds of promises God made. But but the one thing that they all had in common was that they were all about the future. Over and over and over again, God promised his people before he sent Jesus, that the future would not be one of meaninglessness and darkness and decay where sin would just run its course until we you know, went extinct as a race. God promised that somehow, some way, the future would be one of light and of life and of glory and of hope and peace and restoration. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the tangible evidence that God had kept the promise that he had made. When, when, when Paul met Jesus, when he met the risen Son of God on the road to Damascus, he knew exactly what that meant, that Jesus had been raised. But he knew that the resurrection vindicated everything that Jesus said about himself. It doesn't really matter. I mean, Jesus had a lot of really inspiring things to say during his lifetime, but it doesn't matter if somebody says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the resurrection and the life, if they die and stay in the ground. But when when Paul saw the resurrected Son of God, he knew that that vindicated everything that Jesus said about himself, that Jesus really was the King, that Jesus really was the Messiah. He really was the one that we had been waiting for since that horrible day in Genesis chapter 3 when we had a problem for which we had no solution. 
He knew that the resurrection was the tangible proof that Jesus as king would one day return to this sin-stained world and fix everything. That he would eliminate sin and evil and wickedness and suffering and pain and wipe away every tear from every eye of his children. And that his kingdom would know no end for those who call on his name. And and maybe most importantly for Paul, he knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof that just as the grave was not the end for Jesus, neither would it be the end for anyone who calls on his name. It's that fact that changed Paul's life more than anything else. It's that fact that allowed him to endure anything in this life knowing he had a hope that went beyond this life. And that and nothing less is what you and I need if we're going to be restored human beings. What every single one of us needs is, is an identity that does not depend on our day-to-day performance. We need a purpose that breaks us out of our natural self-centeredness, and we need a hope that nothing in this life can take away. And so before we move to our conclusion, and we're almost done here, that, that just, just two groups of people. If, if you're listening to this and you've already put your trust in Jesus, the application of this is really simple. Uh, remember what you have in Jesus and who you are in Jesus, because that's what growth in Jesus looks like. So often it's not we need to learn something new so much as we need to really understand the power of what we already know. We need to understand the power of the gospel, that we have a new identity in Jesus, that we have a purpose for our lives in Jesus, and that we have a hope that nothing in this life can take away in Jesus. This this whole speech by Paul is a call for everyone who's already put their trust in Jesus to just think more deeply and and be transformed by what the gospel says is already true about us. But if you're listening to this, either here or through a screen, if you're listening to this and you have not put your trust in Jesus, I I just want to offer you something that maybe you'll find interesting. Uh, This speech was originally delivered to somebody exactly like you. This was delivered to King Agrippa, who, who knew a lot about Christianity, but he was skeptical to the truth of Christianity, and he certainly hadn't, put, he hadn't made the decision to put his trust in Jesus. And this speech is really kind of subversive because Paul's not just giving his testimony for his own freedom. He was giving his testimony that King Agrippa might one day be freed by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And so, of, of course, if you're listening to this and you haven't made that decision yet, then, then you know, full disclosure, my desire is that you would, that you would give your life to Jesus. But even if you're not ready to do that right now, can I just invite you to do something that this world almost punishes people for doing anymore, which is to just stop and think. When we talk about the idea of of an identity and a purpose and a hope, I can say with confidence, you're already finding those things in some place. The question is, is it a place that's safe to find them in? You're already building your identity on something. The question is, is that going to lead to the turmoil in your life that it led to in Paul's? You already have a purpose for your life. And you're already putting your hope in something. The only question is, is that hope one day going to leave you hopeless? Because what Paul would say if he were alive today is that there's one hope that will never disappoint you, and that's hope in the name of Jesus. So we've arrived at the end of our time today. The the last thing that I wanted to share with you is is something I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to admit. I've been in Christianity, around Christianity my whole life. I actually never knew until this week why the early church Christians started worshiping on Sundays rather than Saturdays. And so if you've ever wondered that, I'll tell you. The reason that the first followers of Jesus started worshiping on a different day of the week was not because they were looking at the past and trying to differentiate themselves from the Jews. It's because they were looking to the future. Because Sunday was the day that Jesus Christ was raised. And so they gathered on Sundays to remind themselves of the resurrection of their Savior, of the future resurrection of all who put their trust in him, 
and of the future restoration of the world that Jesus has promised one day he will return to and set right. And so the reason that we gather together on Sunday mornings, even if we've got to wear a mask for a few weeks, is not to sing a bunch of songs. It's not to hear a message. And it's certainly not to escape reality. It's actually to remind ourselves of ultimate reality. That as the grave could not contain Jesus, neither will it contain anyone who calls on his name. That our future in Jesus is a future of restoration. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if there is no resurrection, we might as well just eat and drink, be merry, because we're going to die soon anyway. But if Jesus really was raised, and I'm here to tell you Jesus really was raised, then our future is filled with hope. And it's a hope that nothing in this life can take away. So we're going to end today by celebrating that hope in communion. I want to call the worship team uh, back up. We haven't celebrated communion since literally the beginning of this year. And, um, and so we're going to do one final song. And during that song, you're welcome to get the, the bread and the juice, which actually should be right underneath your, your, your seat right now. We kind of did this Oprah style. You get communion and you get communion kind of thing. You're welcome to celebrate communion while we end and, uh, and to remember what Jesus has done for you uh, so that we can have hope and um, and while we do that, I want to read a quote to you that explains the purpose of communion really better than, than I think anything I've ever read before. Uh, I've had this taped to the back of my Bible for years, and I'll, uh, I'll leave you with this. It says, The Lord's table then is not just a visual aid to remind us as though it were a memory jogging tool. As we gather together around the table, we're being trained to eat at the big table in Jerusalem. And we're announcing to ourselves and to the satanic powers in the air around us what's really true. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is a sham. But the alternative is not a refusal to eat, drink, or be merry. That would be ingratitude. I want you to hear me on this. Instead, with the resurrected Jesus, we sing out, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. I hope you leave this service today encouraged and filled with hope. Because the promise Christianity holds out for everyone who will put their trust in Jesus is that in Jesus we are not what we want to be, we're not what we should be, but we're not what we used to be, and we are filled with hope for what we're going to be by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just would ask you, especially during this final song while we take communion together, that the truth of the resurrection of your son Jesus would be more real to us God, I am so convinced that so many of the, the, the problems and the issues and the suffering that we experience in this life would be alleviated if we simply understood and saw more clearly that blood-stained cross and that empty tomb and all that it means for us. Would you make it more real to us, Father? In the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.